Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Hello, oh, back to Heard Tell. Okay, one of our favorites. We love working with her off camera. We love getting her on camera and getting to chat with her because she does so much stuff. I can't even tell you how busy this person has been the last few weeks. Gabriella Hoffman is back on the program, even though you're on the road right now, aren't you? I am. I am finding myself on the road. I'm trying to wind down my travel. Uh, that's that's a problem I have, but it's it's all good, and I'm enjoying it. I'm as I was telling you before going on the air. I am in Colorado for the first time, which people find and are in disbelief over because I travel out west a lot. But no, really excited to talk to you from Colorado, Colorado Springs more specifically. So we have a lot to break down. I'm excited to break down things with you. Proud home of the Air Force Academy, among other many, many beautiful things. Be careful walking around. That altitude will sneak up on you. Uh, beautiful. Type of <laughs> yeah, no joke. That, hey, look, I'm an, and I am a mountain kid, but the two, 3,000 feet of the Appalachians ain't the Rockies. It sneaks up on you. No. Um, let's start here because I'm, there's so much to cover, and you've been doing conferences and media appearances. Let's start a little big picture and then zoom back in because you were tweeting about something and I read it last night because it popped up on my feed. Um, the AP style book. We've been talking about guns in our country. We, we had some gun legislation passed that was, we can dig into it in a little bit, but it was, it was a lot of rearranging nomenclature without doing a whole lot, but we can talk about that later. But they want to do the assault weapons ban again. It is one of Joe Biden's signature accomplishments in his entire career, the 94 signature assault weapons ban. So it makes sense they're pushing again, even though it's not going to go anywhere. There's a committee uh, hearings about it right now. But you brought up the AP style book that they have a definition of assault weapons. And of course, our Second Amendment friends are always like, well, assault weapons, what does that mean? Because that's just a word. Talk about that for a second, why that caught your attention, because it sure caught mine. Yes. So a common refrain we hear from people who dislike modern sporting rifles or they dislike air 15s is they label it using the nomenclature. It's an assault rifle. And as someone who has spent some time around these weapons in question or these rifles in question, I don't see how you can label it as such, even with having some recreational shooting experience. I'm not military. I'm a civilian and all that. But having spent quantifiable time around these rifles in question, I don't see how they're assault in nature. Uh, you look at how the firearm is crafted, how it's manufactured, and you especially look at the trigger guard, the triggers especially. And when a scary looking rifle has even just one pull of the trigger corresponding to one bullet coming out, that's not assault in nature. That is a semi-automatic firearm in nature. And the associated 
WordPress style guide, thankfully, has put out a wonderful graphic, and I think they have a full explainer saying that, hey, fellow media members, you guys not need to be tasked with accuracy and reporting because you can't go around using this pejorative term, an assault rifle, to label modern sporting rifles that are owned largely safely by 24 plus million people, according to new statistics that are out by the National Shooting Sports Foundation. So media organizations still peddle in this false labeling of a modern sporting rifle as an assault rifle, when in fact it is not when you look at it and examine it, mechanically speaking, and kind of just how the trigger guard is oriented. So I wanted to highlight that on Twitter. I found that to be interesting. I was like, I got to find that graphic because it does tie into, I think today they're going to be questioning manufacturers in Congress to hold them culpable for mass shootings, which they don't have any culpability with because their products are not geared towards and marketed towards criminal usage. You talk to any one of them, I understand they want to go there to probably clear the record. And then we could talk about the immunity law, the PLCCA, if you want to dive deep into it as well, which actually does not offer full immunity to them. So that's kind of the wraparound for the graphic because it ties into that hearing that is occurring today with manufacturers because they want to hold them up as these horrible merchants who are peddling in death when in fact the opposite is true. I've been to SHOT Show. I've never felt unsafe going to SHOT Show where manufacturers gather They like to see their products used safely. And so I hope they do clear the air if those that are testifying go there to do it and not get suckered into kind of the Democrat anti-gun talking points. I think they're going to go there to clarify and say like, hey, we're in compliance. We're not fully immune given different uh, statutes within immunity in the PLCCA, that law that's in the books that actually got a lot of bipartisan support when it was passed into law in the early 2000s. A lot of Democrats actually signed in the, the moderate Democrats that used to be there signed into that. So that's kind of a wraparound into that graphic and just the common mistake or deliberate intention of labeling modern sporting rifles, oftentimes Air 15 or Armor Light Rifle 15s in this light. So I hope your listeners kind of understood that with kind of my big picture wraparound with it. Yeah. And the reason I want to get into this, (laughs) and this is a little in the weeds, but you got to get in the weeds on this for a reason. They say, well, we want an assault weapons ban. We had one for 10 years, 94 to 2004. We had an assault weapons ban. The problem is you cannot just pass a law and say we ban all assault rifles. If you said and you wrote a piece of legislation that was one line that said we ban assault weapons, that would ban nothing because there's no such thing as an assault weapon. I understand the term. I know people apply it, but the black and white of the law, that wouldn't apply to anything. They have to go in and they have to do, especially with weapons, things like this, they have to do very specific nomenclature. And the reason this is a big deal, and we've seen it to the ridiculous point, because we all remember when chainsaw bayonet was a thing a couple of years ago because somebody got suckered on that. They start talking about the parts of the weapon. So are you going to talk about the parts of the weapon that matter, the receiving, the rate of fire? Has it been modified? One thing I think you could find some common ground on, are you modifying it from the manufacturer's uh, designations, which is something they're going to be talking about in this committee hearing today? Or are you going to deal with things like, does the stock slide? Is it black? Is it scary looking? Does it have you know, 30 rounds instead of a 20 round magazine? You know, these things that matter less than that. I know people are going to go to things like Uvalde in the school shootings and go, well, the police were outgunned, which they weren't, but we'll talk about that some other time. This legislation, though, is it going to be foolishness where you go into what it looks like? Or are you going to actually deal with the nomenclature of what the weapon is designed to do? 
because I know which way it normally goes over the last 10, 15 years that I've been watching them do this, and they don't go to the serious part of it. Mm-mm. No, for them, they've revealed their intentions. They do want to have a wholesale ban of anything they don't like or anything they ascribe negative qualities to with respect, especially to the Air 15, some of which have been used in recent mass shootings, but they are not the dominant firearm often used by criminals to commit these ghastly acts. Those are handguns, but that's still no justification to ban them. But I think we've seen them reveal what their intentions are. They will say, okay, we'll just examine some of the physical attributes of an AR-15 or a modern sporting rifle. But when you when they're probed and let's say the eyewitnesses will respond back to them and maybe school them perhaps about educating them on the different features, I think they'll reveal their true intentions. And they already have. They have said, we just want to start here and then we will expand to banning every gun we possibly can. And I understand They say, well, this is a common talking point to refute gun control arguments that they want to eventually go after everything. But it's an incremental, it's kind of like an incrementalist ban style to slowly but surely go after, let's say, perceived scary looking guns, so-called perceived assault rifles, which are not assault rifles in nature. And then they're going to work their way up when they can, let's say, sucker in Republicans, too, because there are a few Republicans who pretend to be for the Second Amendment who are starting to buy this. But there are a small number, few and far between, but a handful in the House do sometimes join Democrats to do this. I think Adam Kinzinger has expressed interest in doing this as well. And I think Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania is also in that uh, group of Republicans that are very wobbly on firearms when it comes to these more detailed kind of um more thought-provoking firearms that deserve to have more, let's say, attention awarded to them, given the unique features they have, uh, because you can't just say it's an assault weapon or uh, assault rifle here. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and so I think they want to use this to paint these firearms in a negative light. They're going to then try to lambast these manufacturers and say, well, your products are responsible for killing kids in school. How do you respond to this? Don't you feel guilty? So they're going to make them feel guilty for they directly not having any involvement in these horrific mass shootings, saying your product is creating a culture of killing. How do you feel about this? So they're going to try to turn the public against these manufacturers and not really give the manufacturers time to respond. And maybe some manufacturers will be able to overcome these really ridiculous questions that are expected to be wielded towards them, awarded to them. And Like I said, I think it goes back to, they're going to start here. If they can successfully ban an AR-15, put it under the NFA, um, make it harder for people to obtain them, although there is a genuine market demand for them. Like I had alluded to er earlier, the growth in ownership of AR-15s is not an accident. It's not some conspiracy to see criminals doing it. It's not some, it's not creating a more criminal class. It's a lot of people who are buying this. So it's not some outlier purchasing behavior that we're seeing going on, but they want to make it into like a boogeyman that, oh my God, these rifles are proliferating. This is what's happening. If we don't regulate it, it's going to lead to more bloodshed. But like I had said earlier as well, AR-15s are not as commonly used in mass shootings as let's say handguns are, or let's say crimes involving firearms more so. So it's really hard to regulate and pinpoint a rifle, but you can easily discriminate against it because it aesthetically looks very scary. So I worry that they're going to use this example. Let's say if they succeed in doing this, I don't see them doing this in the Senate, even with a more divided makeup there. Um, The House, we may see some iteration of this pass, but you go even into states that have, let's say in Virginia, they tried to pass this when Democrats were in control of our General Assembly. They couldn't even get Democrat support because they knew there would be huge blowback 
to banning modern sporting rifles. So I can see that similarly play out in that in the Senate. I don't know about in the House, um, even though the facts presented showcase that this is a very commonly owned firearm. It's used in defensive gun usage. Um, it's very popular among women. It's very popular among minority gun owners. And so <clears throat> for them, I think it's just a stepping stone to eliminate all guns from society. But they want to use this as a first example to then say, okay, we're going to eventually ban let's say maybe an extended magazine, or maybe we're going to ban do-it-yourself guns, um, even though they may be ATF compliant and they have a serialized number. We'll ban ghost gun kits, although there is legal precedent and judicial precedent to not do it because Nevada just actually overturned their so-called ghost gun ban kit, citing First Amendment and also Commerce Clause concerns about doing that. Um, I think it's just an incrementalist way for them to get to the public, to pull up the heartstrings, and then proceed full speed ahead and like you said earlier, with Republicans signing on to this gun control piece of legislation, which sounds great with respect to nomenclature, but it's not really going to have an effect on mitigating crime. I think if they're able to capture Republican support for this, they're going to, again, then you can get wholesale gun control. But maybe there's still an appetite to say, whoops, we're not going to support this. This is above the pale for us. This is not going to please the public. It really has no effect on crime and mitigating instances of crime. And you may even get some Democrats. I think a few that are in swing districts that are very competitive this year. I think in Maine, there's a competitive district where a former Marine who is the Democrat incumbent is pretty vulnerable. And I think he has voted against some of the gun control measures recently, citing where he lives and how Maine is very rural and it wouldn't be the will of the people in his district to do so. But yeah, I think it could open the door to future gun control, confiscatory measures. And th they've been going about this for many years. In terms of me observing it, I've seen them do this back and forth since Obama's time. So this is nothing new. And if they are to succeed in the messaging war with kind of painting these firearms in a negative light, what's to stop them from banning handguns? Because those are the most used in crime uh, when criminals are using guns for enacting really horrific acts. So I don't think they stop here, they'll continue. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And of course, their argument is going to be to turn around and go, well, of course, we want to ban handguns. We get rid of all the guns. There won't be any violence. You just went through the legislative and the political arguments of this, but that's only two parts of it. The other part of this is the legal part of this argument. Assault weapons ban was never directly challenged in court on the Second Amendment grounds. Now, since then, there's two things that have happened. We've had Heller, the Heller decision, which is probably going to be precedent going forward. It's already been cited. In fact, it was cited in one of the cases you just mentioned. And we have a conservative Supreme Court that we've seen that's, you know, <laughs> you might have heard kind of overturning things as of late. If they tried to do another one of these bans, and we've already seen some other things going, 
What's the legal environment now post-Heller with a conservative court, at least for the foreseeable future, for guns rights legislation and gun control legislation as well? I think the Roberts court is structured in a way where see more, I think, overturning of gun control legislation, at least the most egregious parts of it. I'm not sure if we're going to see them say you have to eliminate the permitting system for concealed carry. I'm not sure they're at that point quite yet, although there could be some casework that does build up for them to say, okay, the permitting system is restrictive. It does infringe on your Second Amendment rights. And we're seeing the states do that. 25 states now, half of the country has constitutional carry. But the the Bruin decision opens the door to a lot of different things. I think good things. Um, In the outstanding states that had shall issue regimes, uh, permitting regimes, you now start to see most of these states, with the exception of New York for the most part, complying with the ruling, adjusting their permitting system to reflect the Supreme Court decision. I think some of them are still going to create obstacles. They're going to find some way to to retool the permitting system. Well, okay, we're going to give would-be applicants a bone and we're going to, you know, make it a little easier. But I think in some of the states I, I can envision in, let's say, New England, it'll still be fairly difficult. I think it'll be easier in Massachusetts than, let's say, New York to obtain a concealed carry permit now. Um, Rhode Island may similarly have some obstacles. I think um, some of the other states too. Delaware has a weird permitting regime where you have to get your name published in the newspaper before you can successfully obtain a permit. I thought found that to be super crazy and invasive. But I think um, with this decision handed down because the Roberts court found that creating these obstacles to obtaining a permit restricts your ability to protect yourself outside the home. So they, I think they went off of the Heller decision to say, okay, we ruled that you can safely and legally own a home inside your house. Okay, now we have to rectify the problem of can we allow people to own handguns this doesn't apply to long guns, uh, open carry, although that's a separate debate, of course. But can we apply a similar standard to handguns outside your home? Can you carry outside your home? And so they found good arguments. I know Justice Thomas wrote the majority opinion of this and said that it would be ridiculous to keep the standards in place. And it was time to overturn these may issue permitting rules. And so um, there is an appetite. It also reflects kind of the times we're in. More and more people are obtaining concealed carry permits. And like I said, some states are even going beyond that and adopting constitutional carry measures, which still don't really change anything that much. You can't be a prohibited possessor. You can't have a criminal record. And it only applies to handguns. Again, not to rifles or any long guns in that sense. And so I think when people see that they can't count on law enforcement, they can't count on people who are supposed to, you know, observe their safety or rather secure their safety, Um, whether it was in the 2020 kind of riots or let's say um, distrust in law enforcement that you can kind of see in some areas of the country. Let's say that you've followed up from the Uvalde shooting. I think no matter where you fall on the gun issue, I saw almost uniformity when it came to the lack of preparedness that those law enforcement officers have. That's not to say every law enforcement officer is poorly equipped to respond to a mass shooting, but these guys in particular were very, very poorly equipped to do it. And it's not because of them having guns. It's just they didn't want to go in and do it for some strange odd reason. People see these different factors. You can't count on your government officials to protect you. You can't count on law enforcement and you have vigilantes who are enacting harm. 
all over the place in major cities and now even in rural areas. You start to see crime going up in rural and suburban areas too. So no place is immune from the surge in crime that we're seeing. So Americans want to take it upon themselves to get a handgun. They perhaps want to learn how to use it. They want to get a permit to be able to safely carry outside their home. And so you see changing opinions. I have cited two recent polls. I think it was a Marquette Law School poll and a Reuters Ipsos poll that showed that there is pretty overwhelming support now for concealed carry outside the home. Although the methodology for the other questions about gun ownership was very weird in my opinion, but it showed over 60% of support for concealed carry. So the Supreme Court is reflecting where public opinion is going on concealed carry. And I think more and more trends will follow that. And I think this court will hear more cases because I, like I said, I still think some of these formerly May issue states are gonna create obstacles, New York City, is one example, or New York is one example, and, and New York City, the fact that they're not wanting to, basically there's really no change to the concealed carry regime there. They're still restricting it from private businesses. It's not just public spaces or government buildings or public sector type um, buildings, you know, government offices, things of that sort. Now they're, they're keeping restrictions in largely public places, um, which would otherwise comply with the Supreme Court and put shall issue there unless otherwise posted. Um, but they're still creating a lot of obstacles. So I could see New York <clears throat> failing to comply with Bruin decision being further challenged and maybe prohibitions to other aspects, um, maybe challenges to the suppressor laws um, and other tools that are so shown to enhance your experience and not contribute to crime rates in this country uh, being challenged in the court of law because this has created an opening. So I think for gun rights supporters, you can be very optimistic they're not going to overturn all gun control legislation at this point in time, but I think they're going to be open to challenging a lot of really nonsensical laws that have kept a good portion of the country from enjoying their ability to conceal carry in public safely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <coughs> Talking to Gabriella Hoffman, fighting through a cult. She's playing hurt, but she's getting it done for us. We're going to take a quick break. Let her get a drink. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue to talk about 2A. Uh, one of the things that's always thrown out at 2A folks is, well, you can still hunt and stuff. Well, she's a conservation expert. We're going to talk about the hunting because there's been a lot of regulation in that area. It all ties together. We're going to continue our conversation. Gabriella Hoffman, one of our <laughs> favorites on Herd Tell right after this. Welcome back to her tell Gabriella Hoffman. She is a great person to work with behind the scenes, really enjoying because she's one of these regional manager. Uh, one of our great contributors with young voices. She is all over the place though. Got a long list of there. Here's where I want to go with this. Cause we're talking second amendment a little bit in depth today. Uh, people talk about it is like, well, you should be hunting and nothing else with it. Here's the problem with that because I grew up rurally. I grew up in West Virginia, big hunting state. Uh, we have enough weapons in West Virginia probably to outfit a small army just in private possession. Here's the problem. Hunting rights and sportsman rights have been under assault much quieter than Second Amendment and some of the bigger things that people focus on because that makes a lot more money. Let's just call it what it is. It gets more fundraising. Conservationists and sports rights, whether it's hunting, fishing, just good old-fashioned property rights and land use rights, you've been writing a lot about this. 
This really is the other side of the coin when we talk about the Second Amendment, though, because on one hand, folks are saying, well, it's for hunting and that sort of thing. Those rights have been trying to be restricted at the same time. It makes that argument a little disingenuous to me. What do you think? I think you're probably alluding to probably my coverage of the Return Act. And we could talk about that legislation, too, and whether or not it is an infringement on the Second Amendment, as some Republicans are arguing. But the only connection really you could make between the Second Amendment being a guarantee of hunting rights, which it really isn't. There's no language associated with it in the 27 words pertaining to the Second Amendment. But the only connection you could really find is the funding mechanism that connects the two activities together. And that is a self-imposed excise tax that manufacturers and other sportsmen and conservationists wanted to see self-imposed in the 1930s through the Pittman-Robertson Act of 1937. And they recognized that if they were extirpating commonly owned or commonly known species rather from the landscape, that there would be a lot of turmoil in the future. And so you have now today over $15 billion that has been generated to go back to the states. This year alone, it was, they say it's between 1.1 and $1.5 billion that has been returned to the states to help with target shooting ranges on public land assisting with um, hunters' education courses, wildlife conservation, habitat restoration efforts. And there's really no disagreement between manufacturers in the firearms industry and sportsmen to have this channel of funding that goes to all these activities. Now, with respect to the Return Act, the proponents of that, one individual in particular, Andrew Clyde, and he campaigned on this actually when he was running for Congress. He's an FFL dealer. And he sees any imposition of an excise tax as your infringement to keep and bear arms. But you talk to most people who are Second Amendment supporters who also happen to go hunting, you don't hear a uniform support for his proposal. And what he wants to do is he wants to eliminate Pittman-Robertson funds. He claims it's unconstitutional. I've never seen that argument ever played out. And he claims, well, the Supreme Court is going to rule on this and they're going to eventually make their way to to say that this law is unconstitutional and we have to get with the program. And when I explore excise taxes, the only connection, like I said, that that connects hunting with the Second Amendment, your purchasing of guns and ammunition. Um, I haven't seen any argument say that you're going to lose your gun rights. You're going to lose your ability to own guns. And when some some of my friends have pressed this congressman about the Return Act, okay, show us where exactly the infringement occurs. Show us where downstream it hits consumers. And I haven't seen any evidence. I've been asking people in the industry. I've asked, I've tried to do my own research. I looked at Tax Foundation. I looked at all these different things. I even looked at the Rand Corporation, where the other side, you have Democrats, anti-gunners. We have Congressman Don Beyer, who wants to impose a thousand percent excise tax on modern sporting rifles to discourage purchasing power and purchasing behavior of people to buy this. I think both proposals are wrongheaded. Um, and when it comes to this proposal for the Return Act, you're not really seeing a decrease in costs when you eliminate an excise taxes. Excise tax is formulated very differently from the sales tax. You're not going to see on your receipt okay, this is what you saved with the absence of Pittman-Robertson. And so he also claims that it's going to be a replacement fund with 800000 or $800 million to go to conservation funding to substitute Pittman-Robertson funds that are generated. And that's like a loss of, if we go with the, the least amount, the $1.1 billion, that's a loss of $300 million. 
If you go to the 1.5 billion mark, that's a loss of $700 million. And you see a lot of sportsmen and women who are also are proponents of the Second Amendment. You, you see them say that, hey, this is not the battle to be fighting. This is not <clears throat> where we see attacks on your ability to own and keep arms. We impose this on ourselves. This is a way to check ourselves so we don't wreck ourselves when it comes to wildlife conservation. And also another component I alluded to, like I said, you eliminate Pittman-Robertson funds, people are not going to be able to enjoy recreational shooting on public target ranges. It's very expensive right now, by all estimates, to go to a private range. And private ranges are great. I've done most of my shooting at private ranges. But it's an attack on the Second Amendment, if you want to make that argument, if you're not going to have funding for these public ranges. And the, during the Trump administration, they actually passed a bill to enhance it. So more Pittman-Robertson dollars do go to target ranges. And that was passed almost with pretty big bipartisan support a few years ago. And so the way Pittman-Robertson is structured, again, it's a self-imposed tax. And then you also have this component where you are seeing funding going to target ranges. I think it's a lost battle. You shouldn't be dividing sportsmen and women who do support the Second Amendment in this light. And I think Republicans are going to have to answer for this if they claim we're sportsmen and women. And then people will see that, well, your name was attached to this very successful conservation law. So how can I trust you to defend my ability to go hunting, fishing, and even to protect my ability to practice target shooting on public ranges? So it, it's not really seen as an infringement on Second Amendment rights. And you see most of the gun manufacturers support Pittman-Robertson funding. So that's the, that's the unanswered question there. If, if they're in support of this, they don't see this as an infringement on Second Amendment rights. Why is this battle being waged? What is this sponsor of the bill gaining out of this? And, and how can you justify replacement with this program when you're going to see a net loss and you're going to see conservation funding altered severely. And again, your ability to do target ranges, those are going to, those are going to have to be closed if there's no funding to supply those target ranges or to maintain them rather. And so it's just, it's, it's not going to pass anywhere. I've heard from people inside Congress who said this bill is laughable. It'll never be heard when Republicans, if Republicans take over, it's a losing issue. It causes division. It's not the battle to wage against gun control fighting against the attempts to ban AR-15s and other measures that are actual gun control items are more fruitful rather than creating a boogeyman out of the Pittman-Robertson Act. Yeah, real quick, <laughs> a couple minutes we got left, Gabrielle Huffman joining us. Love having her. Here, here's something that I think we lose because we get into the Second Amendment debate and there's the nomenclature like we started out talking about. Really, though, when you break this all down, we're talking about rights. And like you just everything you just talked about in there, property rights, what the government can and can't tax, Second Amendment, First Amendment speech. This is the core stuff. If you go back and read, this is what they debated over the Constitution. This is what they debated over the bill. This is really just foundational stuff. It's just you put the guns on top of it. People kind of lose their minds a little bit. But it's the same. Whatever other issue you're going to talk about, it all goes back to those fundamental rights, doesn't it? It does. And often I hear from my dad tell me that what separates us from, let's say, the Soviet Union or formerly uh, communist countries or countries that are experiencing bouts of tyrannical, you know, tendencies is the Second Amendment. Countries that are more free tend to have this measure in place. Everyone says, well, crime is a lot higher in the United States with the presence of lawful gun ownership. But that's actually not the case. I think the United States only accounts for 4% of violent crime all across the board. Someone, I forget his affiliation, but he was tied to one of the gun organizations. I think he's a lawyer, but he's a statistician as well, or he knows how to extrapolate data 
fairly coherently. And he found that actually we don't account for the most violent crime across the globe. Other countries, often with the absence of firearms, lawful firearms ownership, tend to be more violently aggressive than the United States. And so people forget that, oh my gosh, there's a proliferation of guns. This is horrible to have, but we're a lot safer with the presence of an armed citizenry that is safely trained, that is educated, and more and more people are getting into the fold. They want to be trained. They want to know how to use their guns. We're a lot safer and we can repel, let's say, instances of tyranny, whether it comes from attackers coming into your home or people who want to regulate guns out of existence, not saying you discharge any violent tendencies towards political opponents, but I'm saying, rhetorically speaking, item, legislation, whatever, uh, because of the Second Amendment and just case study and, like I said, Supreme Court rulings and other other uh, measures out there that say that regulating this is going to be seen as an infringement on rights. The public is moving in the direction towards support of the Second Amendment and away from gun control, no matter how present, let's say, the mass shootings. Um, people see, again, that the criminals, people see that the criminals who often are committing the crimes, whether it's an AR-15 or a handgun, they're often prohibited possessors, the repeat offenders. So banning a gun is not going to deter someone who has a track record of already committing criminal behavior with the use of firearms. It's not going to change if you eliminate the firearms. Prohibitions usually never work. And so I think people go back to it's a fundamental right. It's enshrined in the Constitution. More and more people are learning how to use firearms safely and responsibly. And they see that without it, it can lead to instances of tyranny. It can lead to a lot of people being vulnerable to attack. And so that is why support for it, why we're going to see lots and lots of fighting back, I guess, to the gun control start to be witnessed even more. Like I said, public opinion is moving in, it, in this direction. I think with education, people will see it. And you start to see media organizations like the AP even saying, let's be accurate in our reporting because this can give ammunition to bad actors to misrepresent what is being discussed. So I'm optimistic. I want to be optimistic on this front that people are wanting to safeguard and respect Second Amendment rights. And I think more and more people beyond, let's say, your typical Republican white owning gun owner, white gun owner, you're seeing a lot more diverse gun owners come to the fold. You start to see more black gun owners. You start to see more women gun owners and Asian gun owners. Everyone across the board is now discovering the Second Amendment, even across political lines, too. So you can't say it's just Republicans who champion this. You also will see independents and Democrats start to come around and I think maybe shed their preconceived notions or past preconceived notions about gun control. Yeah. Interesting times. We live in. <laughs> Gabriella Hoffman, she played her today, ladies and gentlemen, she uh, got through it for her and we appreciate it greatly. We'll get you back on very soon. You enjoy your travels. Thank you so much for the time today. Yes. Anytime, Andrew. Good to be on with you when I'm not coughing. Um, I think we could talk more, but let's talk about lead bands next. I think that is a worthy discussion. Well, that, that'll be fun. Uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you so much, ma'am. Thank you for having For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.